Welcome back to the God's Story podcast, exploring the big story of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. And in this podcast, we're going to be exploring the work of a subversive and shocking woman who is an unusual part of God's story. The writer Dorothy L. Sayers, best known probably for her Lord Peter Whimsey detective novels. Sayers was in her early life something of a reluctant Christian who disliked many aspects of the church, church tradition, and even many Christians. Yet from reluctant beginnings, she became one of the great Christian apologists of the 20th century, along with C.S. Lewis, and was at the center of one of the biggest religious scandals of the 20th century. She wrote a play about the life of Jesus Christ in contemporary English, even using American slang. Yes, and to talk about this remarkable and feisty lady, another remarkable and feisty lady, if I may call her so, Dr. Crystal Downing. Dr. Downing is the co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center and co-holder of the Marion E. Wade Chair in Christian Thought at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States. And she's published five books, Writing Performances, The Stages of Dorothy L. Sayers, How Postmodernism Serves Faith, Changing Signs of Truth, Salvation from Cinema, The Medium is the Message, and Subversive, Christ, Culture, and the shocking Dorothy L. Sayers, which is the one we're talking about today. The book explores the various ways Sayers speaks to Christians in the 21st century. And I quote from the Wheaton College website, Sayers can shock people into seeing the radically subversive truth of Christian orthodoxy in new ways. Dr. Downing, welcome. Thank you. Oh, it's a delight to be with you. It's a delight to speak to you. Why was Dorothy L. Sayers so shocking and so subversive? <laughs> well, she even started out early in her career enjoying shocking people. And I don't know if it had to do with the fact that she was an only child and um, had a lot of attention given her uh, she was brilliant. She um, learned French from an au pair in her teenage years. She loved being creative. And uh, before she really started integrating faith into her life, she actually enjoyed generating a controversy when she published a book of poetry that questioned contemporary or question the way people use Christianity to endorse their own um, self-serving cultural assumptions. And she actually got one of her friends to compose a letter to a local newspaper uh, decrying, denouncing this book of poetry because she thought, ooh, if we shock people the, um, the book might sell better. And so she enjoyed creating shock even at a young age, that was in her twenties. And um, that prepared her for being willing to shock Christians in when she was in middle age, which happened with these BBC radio plays about the life of Jesus, because as you mentioned, it didn't use King James English. And I think most listeners would say, well, so what? But at the time, this was 
the basically it's one of the biggest scandals of 20th century Britain. Um, she was denounced in the press. The it was uh, Christians wrote letters to Winston Churchill, Archbishop of Canterbury, demanding censorship of her plays. She received hate mail from Christians. Um, she received threatening phone calls and she just refused to back down because she knew that her radio plays about Jesus were um, theologically orthodox and that individuals were uh, Christians were committing what she calls bibliolatry, where they idolize traditional language as more important than the actual truth of Christian orthodoxy. She was accused of causing the fall of Singapore, wasn't she, in World War II? Yes. I know. That, that's just how outrageous this controversy got because her third play was released. And here's the play about the uh, miracle at Cana. I mean, it's, it's very orthodox stuff. It's just she has disciples speaking slang. But of course, the disciples were working class. Of course, they spoke slang would have spoken the slang of their day, right? Um, and a newspaper article actually said that because that play was released the day the Japanese started attacking Singapore in 1942, that um, the subsequent fall was because the BBC continued to broadcast Dorothy Sayers radio plays. Mm. Why did she feel it was so important to use contemporary English and, and even American slang in The Man Born to be King? Well, she wanted people to realize, and she explicitly said this, she wanted people to realize that the culture that crucified Jesus was very similar to the culture of 1940s England. And it, it's really easy to think, oh, those, and especially with the, the anti-Semitism that developed in the Middle Ages, oh, those dirty Jews who crucified Jesus. And she said, no, those people were like us today. And um, this is consonant with this idea that all of our sins crucified Jesus, and he redeemed those um, sins by rising from the dead. So it was actually, the irony is that she generated controversy when she was being much more theologically astute and orthodox. But once again, people consider tradition, not the ancient creeds of Christianity. They consider tradition to be the way they feel most comfortable in the way they've always thought and talked about Christianity. And she actually aligned it. She called it um, a, stained, a stained glass view of Christianity, where you're just used to a certain picture and it obscures your view to culture beyond the church. What were some of the problems that Sayers had with Christianity and Christians generally? Well, one of the interesting things that she did in Man Born to be King, as totally aside from the King James English, and that, that was what really ignited the controversy. But as she was studying the Gospels, and she spent a year rereading the Gospels in the original Greek, um, as well as reading Josephus and other histories of the 
era, she wanted to present the life of Jesus accurately to recognize both the gospels and historical context. And one of the changes that really bothered people was she made Judas the smartest and most committed of all the disciples. And we've gotten so used to, ooh, Judas, Judas is the ultimate villain. You know, um, how could you do that? And as she wrote in a letter to someone, if you make Judas obviously evil from the start, it turns Jesus either into someone who's too naive to even recognize the evil of Judas, or it turns Jesus into a manipulator saying, ooh, I have to find someone evil to achieve my purposes. And so then what she does with Judas is Jesus compliments Judas for recognizing, and Judas recognizes that Jesus is not supposed to be a um, lead a political revolution that Jesus was born to suffer and die. I mean, he was, she has Judas be the first disciple to recognize that, but the, and, compliment, and Jesus compliments him. But the trouble is Judas then became so certain of his interpretation of the church that he believed his certitude more than he trusted Jesus. And that is a powerful thing she did in these plays. And it speaks even to today where people trust their certitude more than they trust Jesus. Mm. Uh, how did she get involved in apologetics? Because she didn't want to get involved in apologetics in, <laughs> in quite the... <laughs> right. Um, well, I just see it as God's direction, uh, the Holy Spirit's leading, though she was born to an Anglican rector, she very much compartmentalized her faith. She was very annoyed by simplistic pietism growing up. And uh, when she created Lord Peter Whimsey, who you mentioned, she would quite intentionally made him not a Christian. He says in the novels, he is not a Christian. So he he loves church architecture and the liturgy and music, but he is not religious. And in 1936, so the first Lord Peter Wimsey was 1923. In 1936, um, Sayers had become famous in England. Her novels were bestsellers. People loved Lord Peter Wimsey. She was one of the founding members of the prestigious London Detection Club. She was elected president before Agatha Christie. She had much more respect than Agatha Christie. And then in 36, she got this bizarre, and I see it as a Holy Spirit move, this bizarre request to write a play for the Canterbury Festival. Now, two years earlier, the person who had been asked to write a play for the Canterbury Festival. And it had to be a play performed in Canterbury Cathedral about the history of Canterbury Cathedral. The person asked before her was T.S. Eliot. Mm -hmm. And of course he was the great uh, literary artist of the time. And someone who wrote detective fiction, that's kind of considered subpar. Mm -hmm. 
So um, any of the great, uh, those um, high modernists who valued the arts would have looked down on Dorothy Sayers because she wrote best-selling detective novels. Whereas Eliot wrote, he was so brilliant, you couldn't understand half of what he wrote, right? <laughs> um, and so she was really kind of shocked by this invitation to follow in the footsteps of T.S. Eliot. And she hesitated before accepting because she was a detective novelist. Uh, but one of the things that she had been exploring in the, the later novels she wrote, she wrote 12 detective novels, was an issue that really was consuming her um, for its significance. And that is the integrity of work. And she finally accepted this invitation to write a play for Canterbury Cathedral. And she decided to explore how a, a craftsman who rebuilt Canterbury Cathedral after part of it was burned by fire in the 12th century, how his commitment to the integrity of work has theological implications. And it, it pushed her back into the integration of Christianity with writing. She never renounced her faith growing up. She just marginalized her faith, which is true of a lot of people today. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but it, it's not something that guides their daily choices. And in her effort to try to figure out how the integrity of work interfaces with Christian theology, it revolutionized her life. And she never wrote another detective novel. Um, she became, it, it turned her into a Christian apologist, almost against her will, but it's just because she herself was pursuing the integrity of work and she had to have integrity about the um, theology of Christian orthodoxy. And how does that fit with uh, the integrity of vocation? Basically, she was someone really fascinated with the theology of vocation. Mm. And, and had a very high opinion of intuition as well. Yes, to intuition as well as logic. Uh, because, of course, detective fiction is so based on um, figuring things out. But yes. Lord Peter Whimsey has these intuitional moments. I think part of that may have come from G.K. Chesterton. Sayers says that Chesterton, who of course wrote the Father Brown mystery stories, he was the first president of the um, London's Detection Club because of Father Brown mystery stories. And most of the time, Father Brown figures the solution to mysteries through his intuition if and as well as through human nature. There's an element of intuition with all the great detectives, isn't there? Except perhaps Sherlock Holmes, who is very much a reasoning right. animal. Right, right. And it's interesting that in her early books, her early detective novels, uh, Sayers uh, talks about Sherlock Holmes a lot. And then she starts talking about G.K. Chesterton uh, in her detective fiction or alluding to Chesterton. Yeah. In what ways did Sayers subvert 
detective fiction and the detective genre? Well, some people think that her very first novel in 1923, whose body doesn't follow kind of the generic model of detective fiction, but what really was subversive was her second to last novel, which is Gaudy Night, which is a detective novel that has no murdered body in it. This had really never been done before, at least in um, well-selling detective fiction, if at all. And the mystery that she wanted to solve, and there was a mystery, it was very related to Sayer's life. It's about going back for a reunion at an all-women's college at Oxford University and Sayers graduated from an all-women's college at Oxford University. And it is someone at the university who is just playing all these pranks, these nasty pranks. And so she has to discover not only who is doing these vicious pranks against students and faculty at the college, but also why. And ultimately the mystery is about vocation. Can women have a legitimate vocation other than being wives and mothers? And how did Sayers use language to draw people to Christ? You've written that she, she, re, she liked to rethink theology, didn't she? She liked to put it in different language, in, in the language of the people, in, in language that would, sh well, indeed, shock people. Yeah, right. Well, in these radio plays, Man Born to be King, we talked about the incredible controversy that Christians all over England were protesting. And the irony of the whole protest is that thousands of people tuned into the radio plays because of the controversy. And they were expecting when they tuned in to basically get plays about Jesus that were demythologizing and exposing the fact that no, there weren't miracles. No, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And Sayers just followed gospel accounts. She has Jesus doing miracles. She has him rising from the dead. I mean, basically the gospel story. And for all these people who tuned in because of the scandal, for the first time in their lives, they understood the gospel message because it wasn't in King James English. It was in language they understood. And she got, I use the word thousands. That is the word she used in a letter to C.S. Lewis saying she got thousands of letters from skeptics and what we might call even nuns today, those who check none on uh, at least in America, that's that's a term for people who check none when you have to list your religion on forms, saying that her plays helped them finally understood how Jesus was relevant to their daily slang slinging lives. And they told her they've gone started going back to church. They've started reading the Bible, presumably and not in King James English. <laughs> Although the... That was about, um, all that, that's about all that was available yeah, in the 1940s. There was, um, at the Wade Center where I work, we actually have, we are putting together what we're calling the Wade Annotated Man Born to be King. 
to show the different translations because there was the Moffat translation that was okay. available to yep. her yep. at that time. Yep. Um, so there were alternatives to the King James Bible. It's just that RSV wasn't until the 1950s, of course. So she brought these people to Christ because she refused to use the King James. And, and she presented stories, but as I said about Judas, she gave a different interpretation of how we should think about Judas, that Judas's sin was his certitude. And of course, and a lot of people don't think about this. I didn't think about this till I read Sayers, that people assume faith means certitude, but certitude is the exact opposite of faith. You take things on faith because you don't have certitude. And so she's switching things up for people. And again, it's still consonant with Christian orthodoxy, but it shows how Christian orthodoxy has been corrupted by certain cultural assumptions. And of course, this is exactly what Martin Luther was doing, is showing how people have, have absolutized certain interpretations of Christianity rather than relying on the basic doctrine that was established in the first four ecumenical councils. And she wrote a, she wrote a play about the Council of Nicaea, didn't she? Yes, that's right. She thought this was so important for people to become acquainted with the, those ecumenical councils. And the Council at Nicaea, of course, was held in 325, was organized by the Emperor Constantine. So that's the name of her play, Emperor Constantine. But here is another interesting thing. The really villainous person, and he was declared an or, uh, heretic at the Council of Nicaea, was Arius because he did not believe that Jesus was consubstantial with God. He, he denied the homoousius. And what is interesting that Sayers does in that play is she shows Arius is using the Bible to legitimize his position. And Sayers, that's another thing that Sayers was a real shock for me because I grew up kind of in a fundamentalist tradition where the Bible is the bottom line. But what she pointed out to me is the trouble is people start absolutizing their interpretation of the Bible. And one of the examples I give in America, of course, and there's a great book written by the internationally known Christian historian Mark Knoll about the American Civil War, which was based on slavery. And Christians used the Bible to legitimize slavery. And of course, there's multiple references to slaves and slavery in the Bible. So it's easy to do. And the irony is that abolitionists, those who wanted to get rid of slavery, and this was a Christian movement to get rid of slavery in the 1860s, 1850s, 1860s in America. Christians who wanted to abolish slavery were called unbiblical because people were so used to this one interpretation of scripture. And so basically the Bible 
if you just proof text is what it's called, proof texting, where you just pick and choose verses out of context, you could basically support an argument about many despicable things. So Sayers was really good about getting people to recognize that the Bible itself was, the various books of the Bible were selected by people at the ecumenical councils. So we have to go back to what preceded the biblical canon to the doctrine that was established by great leaders of the church who were following the leading of the Holy Spirit, but they argued a lot. And that's what the Emperor Constantine shows is that earnest followers of Christ did not agree. And that's why there was the need to establish doctrinal statements based on the documents that they had at hand. What was Sayer's view of evangelism? Because she had an interesting attitude to that, didn't she? This ties into her view of the integrity of work, which is just fundamental to her worldview. And she thinks it's problematic when people assume that every Christian is called to evangelism. That is just one of the many spiritual gifts that are listed in the Bible. And so she, the, so the irony is she had trouble with people who say that, well, as a Christian, you have to go out and evangelize. She says, no, that's not what God called me to. And in the process of resisting the idea of evangelism, she brought thousands to Christ. But it's not because she was following this generic model of, oh, no, you have to go and evangelize. No, she was using her gifts as a Christian to educate to educate Christians. So she considered herself an educator rather than evangelist, even though she probably brought more people to Christ than people who say, oh, you're not going out and stopping people on street corners and in supermarkets to evangelize them. Yes. One of her views of evangelism, which interested me, was that for an artist, the best thing they could do was to create a, a great work of imagination uh, yes. that, that in a mythic context, in a mythic world, rather like C.S. Lewis, and we must talk about Lewis yes. and, and C.S. Yes. in a minute, uh, to create a great work of imagination that draws people into this beautiful world where there's a very clear sense of good and a very clear sense of evil. Yes, yes, exactly. Once again, changing the language. The truth doesn't change, but the language does. So now we have a, a lion named Aslan, but it's clearly, uh, Lewis called it a supposal. You know, what if God took the form of a lion in another world and died and then came back to life? And the Narnia Chronicles have ministered to so many people because it gets beyond their weariness of language that they've been hearing their whole lives, and it just becomes empty, if not alienating. So Sayers read all the Narnia Chronicles. She and C.S. Lewis were great friends, and um, she, they both influenced each other. 
Well, uh, Dr. Crystal Downing, thank you very much for your time. Uh, the book, where are we? Subversive? Subversive, yes. Christ, Culture, and the Shocking Dorothy L. Sayers, published by? Um, it's Broadleaf Books. Broadleaf Books, that's right. Mm. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it, it's done. Okay, here's the amazing thing. You change language and you can affect culture. This book was a Publishers Weekly pick of the week. It, Publishers Weekly is a secular organ. But because I'm exploring a woman who's just not using generic Christian language, even though basically the book is endorsing Christian orthodoxy, it is being endorsed by secular culture, which is what happened to Sayers. Mm. And shows the power of that approach to things. Yes. Thank you so yeah. much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a delight. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.